We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science. We are the weekly STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and maths radio show brought to you from Hobart, Tasmania, deep down in the south. And this week we're going to be covering the E in STEM. We're bringing you some good engineering content. So my name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Sarah Lydon. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So what have you been up to this week? So this week we've been hosting a conference Mm -hmm. looking at isolated power systems. Okay, so we're going to give our listeners some more information on isolated power systems in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But would you please introduce our special guest? Yes. So today we have with us um, Gwen Holdman, who's from the Alaska Center for Energy and Power. That sounds like a pretty cool center. Hi, Gwen. How are you? Yes. Hello. How are you? So this is your first time in Tassie? It is my first time in Tasmania and in Australia. That's exciting. So, so are you doing just coming to, to Tassie or are you going for a bit of exploration? On, on this trip, I'm just coming here for this conference, for this workshop, but I absolutely intend to come back. We've had lots of, lots of dialogue and lots of interaction with Australia in this area of isolated power systems over many years. There's lots of connections between Alaska and Australia in this space. So That's really interesting. So are yes. we going to get into the nuance of why there's lots of c- connections and collaborations between both of those? We definitely can. That's good. I'm excited. Um, so did you study engineering in I, I I get to claim both the E and the S. Um, oh. in I, I have a degree in physics and a degree in mechanical engineering. That's very cool. Yes. And that's just, you're just too much of a high achiever. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I'm just like, I could never comprehend physics and maths. And whenever somebody says that they've done the duo, like you've done all of the hard things, that's amazing. So those are typically... Um, have you always had a love for like maths and physics growing up or did it, did you kind of, when did I you decide have, to pursue that yes. career? I, I, <laughs> I have always been a big science nerd my entire life, so I still love it now and now I'm teaching my children to love science as well, <laughs> so we have a lot of fun exploring all kinds of different topics. So oh, that's yeah. fun. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. So what is an isolated power system? Who's going to... Give me the high level explanation. Do you want? Okay, I can I can give that a go. Um, so an isolated power system is a uh, is is a is a remote area. Usually that's not grid connected. So most of us receive power via a kind of a, a, a grid, and we don't think about this very much because the power just comes to us. We flip on the light switch, we plug in our devices, and everything just works. And usually that's part of a very big network, a really big system, and there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, we, uh, In fact, the grid in a lot of places is one of the largest and most complex machines that's ever been invented by mankind. And I think that's pretty interesting and exciting. That's pretty cool. I haven't yeah. thought of that before. It, it's true. Like That's the way we think of the electric grid is like this very complex machine that's like a single organism that that we use to produce and distribute power to all these areas that most of us live in. But there are remote areas where this organism doesn't extend to that don't have transmission lines going to them, and yet we still want to produce reliable 
energy, a power for the people that live there. And so we do that at a local level. And so those are called isolated power systems because they are isolated from the main grid, um, but they still operate in a really similar way. You still have power generation. You're distributing that power to homes and businesses um, in those areas. And the cool thing about Australia and Alaska is that we have a lot of a lot of common uh, areas like this, a lot of communities that um, rely on these isolated power systems as their way of, um, of, of getting electric power. Yes, I suppose you'd have a lot of like geographically regional mm-hmm. and remote communities where it's just not feasible to run lines to connect via the grid to, you know, really far apart yeah, townships. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, um, one interesting thing that you said there, so I was kind of thinking, you know, whenever I think of if you can't be on the grid, you've got to have a generator. But this sounds like you would actually need a source where you're generating the power. So can that be different types of sources like renewables or traditional types of fuel sources? Or is it really dependent on the system or can it use any power generation? So a lot of remote remote locations in both Australia and in Alaska um, rely on diesel generators as sort of the backbone of power generation in those places. And there's a lot of reasons why diesel generation works really well. Um, you can transport fuel to a remote location and it sort of stays in inert form until you, you need to use it. Um, and then you can turn on that diesel generator. The generators are really well um, capable of sort of following the load and making sure that it's meeting whatever the demand is in the community. But it's, it's expensive and there's, you know, obviously challenges related to greenhouse gases. And so there's a real desire to switch over to more local forms of energy and cleaner forms of energy. And this is an area where Alaska and Australia are actually the two global leaders in this sort of space. And that's something that sort of ties these two totally different parts of the world um, together. That's an absolutely awesome spot to segue um, in, in out of our first segment and... Uh, go to a song. You are listening to That's What I Call Science and we are getting into engineering, which is very exciting. It's an area I'm not very familiar with. So I'm, my name is Neve, and I'm joined by Sarah, who is here to make sure we're getting to the crux of things in engineering, no pressure. (laughs) Um, So you're here, Gwen, for a very specific event. What is the event that you're here for? So it's called the Isolated Power Systems Connect, yes. And um, so this is an event that's been held primarily in Australia, um, but last year I think it was actually in Hawaii. So that's another area where you have these um, isolated power systems. Uh, uh, One really common place that we see these is on actual physical islands. So whether that's here in King Island or Flinders Island Island or um, in Hawaii on the Hawaiian Islands, which are not interconnected to one another, or in Alaska, where we don't necessarily have islands. We do have some, but we also have sort of islanded grids, isolated grids um, that are not connected via transmission lines. So those are also isolated power systems. So would that be a population thing, too, that like... If it's a small island with a small population number, you're not really going to put the infrastructure in to have, you know, a big power system. Is that related or am I going a bit wild? Because they sound like geographically small when I think of King and Flinders compared to like Tasmania small. But you might have areas of Tasmania that aren't connected via isolated power systems because they're also quite remote. Yeah, well, it just sort of depends on the distance away from um, 
an actual generating source and the economics of running long transmission lines, the losses that you have along those lines. Yeah, it would obviously be quite expensive to run lines from Tassie to the King and Flinders Islands. Yeah, that makes sense. So what does this workshop aim to achieve? Why does it bring all these people together other than to just go to nice places like Tasmania and Hawaii? Sounds like a really tough life. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really difficult. Um, and today we actually had the uh, opportunity to go out and view a few hydro projects here. Oh, really? On the mainland, or what I would, <laughs> would um. consider the mainland of Tasmania as well. Um, Where did you go? But uh, we went to... Uh, did you go to like Gordon's Dam? That's too far probably. Or Waiatina? Uh, it was Repulse. Yeah. And yes. to see a um, micro hydro setup as well. That's cool. So that was pretty pretty great because you know Tasmania is almost entirely powered by hydroelectric, which is fantastic that you have that resource available, and where you have something like that, which can provide you know base load reliable power as long as you know there's water available, um, is pretty fantastic. You know, but not all places have access to hydroelectric resources, um, so then they have to rely on more variable renewable resources in many cases, like wind or solar energy. And that becomes a little bit trickier because the resource isn't necessarily available when people want to use electric power. And so kind of trying to match the availability of that energy resource with the um, demand that you have in a community or um, is, is sort of can be difficult and can, can add an extra element of engineering challenge to it. Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, there's so many questions I have about those challenges. But so I was wondering, Sarah, um, does this workshop aim to like connect people who are essentially in communities that have requirements for these systems so that they can share expertise or have you been involved with this yourself in the past? So this is actually the first year I've gone along to the, the workshop. That's cool. So it's been really interesting just to listen to um, the different perspectives from different countries in terms of the projects that they're engaging with. But the conference really looks to bring to, you know, engineers, um, isolated power systems, owners and operators, government, policy, utilities, bring all these different people together to actually have a conversation about these systems. And, you know, it's quite exciting some of the, um, you know, progress and challenges that are being faced in this area. Yeah, and I'd imagine, you know, if you're implementing this in communities, you probably need some community buy-in. There's going to be a lot of cultural issues to consider or consider, I wanted to say cultural considerations that would have been better. Um, yeah, so that's that's fascinating. And have you worked in this area long? I have worked in this area a very long time. And in fact, I have lived off the electric grid for a good portion of my adult life. So I've had a lot of like personal, um, and that's actually how I switched over from physics to engineering. Really? Is that, yeah, it was just from, from the personal experience of not having access to grid power and having to develop my own small grid at my home with um, solar and wind and so a battery that like system. A a pre-engineering choice you're like I want to go off the grid and be a I bit more self-sufficient. I didn't have a choice there was no grid where I lived so I had to figure out a way to do that myself and so it got me very much thinking about how much we take electric power and kind of energy in general but electric power specifically for granted like when you have access to it you just don't really think about it it's just a tool that you have that you use you know to do all these amazing things in your life and run your computers and appliances and lights and everything like that but then when you don't have regular access to it it makes your life much more challenging and it just made me really realize like how fortunate we are and you know the fact that um 
taking it for granted isn't necessarily something that we should do and figuring out ways to make sure that we have um, reliable energy in remote areas is was sort of like what I decided I was pretty passionate about so I've been working in this space for um, professionally for about 25 years I yeah guess. wow yeah so when you started off yourself or like in, to try and create a picture of what the challenge is w- within these communities um do they typic- would you typically have to think about this on a household by household basis or would small communities come together to generate power kind of collectively mm-hmm. and to and share that amongst a few like you know locally orientated houses or is it very much a fend for yourself kind of thing I think it really depends if you're talking about sort of the developed world like here in in Tasmania or on the U.S. mainland or in Alaska, there's sort of an expectation that um, it's sort of a, a, a social, it's, a, it's expected that you have access to electric power in most communities. If you're living in a really remote area, then perhaps that's on you. But um, generally speaking, most communities, um, you know, you have access to schools, you have access to electric power, you know, there's these basic sort of um, welfare things, and that's, that's one of them. Um, but other places in the world, you know, there's probably, you know, there's, there's many people in the world that don't have regular access to electric power that could benefit from some of the solutions that we've been developing either here or, or in Alaska um, that really we have an opportunity to see, you know, how can we apply these sorts of solutions elsewhere. And so that's something else that I'm interested in. Um, and certainly uh, this part of the world is an area where there's a lot of opportunity. This is so awesome. My mind's blown because I'm just like, wow, these like they're very basic problems, but I'm sure that they have um, extensive ramifications for communities. And also when we had the first year students from University of Tasmania in for our last engineering episode, and they were talking about in East Timor, Timor-Leste. 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 So they were talking about coming up with solutions for Timor-Leste. And I was really amazed by some of the solutions that those first-year students had come up with and how engineering had really enabled them to be really creative but also pragmatic. So in just a moment, we're going to be talking about some of the challenges to move towards a less dependent on fossil fuels um, operation within these systems. listening to that's what i call science on edge radio and we're talking about isolated power systems which essentially this is the way when you're not on the grid and you're not part of you know a major city or a major populated area and you're maybe living a bit more regional it's essentially a single isolated system for getting power to either a household or multiple households yeah yeah so you just kind of have a distribution system there's no transmission lines going to that isolated um, area and so you just have like local generation local distribution um, of that power and usually some kind of a you know either diesel based system where you're importing the diesel or you can start to incorporate local renewable energy resources whatever that location you know has available to them is what you could incorporate could be geothermal it could be hydropower it could be wind it could be solar it could be biomass those are sort of the typical options what is geothermal so geothermal is really just heat from the earth. And so um, there's a, a little bit of confusion sometimes because people can use um, what's what some people call ground source or geothermal heat pumps, where they're actually just using some heat that's stored near surface in the earth for like cooling or for heating their homes, right? And so that's one way that you can sort of um, take advantage of electric power and kind of 
take advantage of sort of ambient um, thermal energy to heat or cool your home. And you can actually reverse them sometimes. So you can use them for heating in the winter and cooling in the summer. And so that's um, a technology that a lot of people call geothermal. But typically, geothermal is actually can, is more deep heat from the earth, so higher temperature heat. That, um, that you might be able to mine from the earth through like natural pathways, like maybe you have water that's sort of going through deep um, cracks or you know, uh, kind of faults in the earth that's kind of coming up to the surface and you might have a hot springs and then you could um, tap that heat for power generation or for heating or so for other beneficial applications. And so that's more traditional, like geothermal, like you would use for power generation. And that's something we've actually done in Alaska, for example. That's yeah. so cool. And then what's biomass? So biomass is sort of um, energy that you can drive from something that's been recently living, right? So it might be um, a tree or sort of forest product. So ideally kind of a residual product from like a forestry um, sort of application. Or it could be um, from some sort of animal-based product. Like so in Alaska, we might use like fish or fish oil or um, methane from cows, methane digesters, you know, where you're using like manure from some kind of livestock and then you're um, kind of using microbes to sort of transform that into methane that then you can use for maybe cooking or for whatever application you might need. And that's actually done quite a lot in a lot of tropical areas where there's not a lot of um, uh, other forms of energy available. So to get people away from burning wood for cook stoves, which is not very healthy actually for a lot of, especially women that are really exposed to a lot of the the, um, the kind of residual, uh, you know, various kind of negative like things that can really harm their lungs and stuff like that. It takes a lot of creativity because you've really got to look at each um, community individually and see, well, what, what do they have that's maybe a nice byproduct from something else that we can use for fuel. I suppose like that must be challenging and would take an assessment for every single community. Is that part of maybe some of the the reason why we're still so dependent on like diesel? Well, diesel's easy, source? right? It's it's super simple. It's not like um, place dependent. You know, you can just bring in the fuel, plunk down a diesel generator, and voila, you have electric power, right? So it's it's quite simple. Um, like you're saying, there's a lot more complexity once you try to incorporate these different kinds of locally available resources and this is kind of where you can really um, work with local communities because a lot of times the people that live there are really familiar with the resources that they have available and I think the more that you can get ownership from communities into thinking about this you know they want to be thinking about sustainable approaches because even more and more now I think from remote communities particularly from developed um, countries we're seeing that they want sustainable options because they bear the brunt of a lot of they don't have the necessary um, emergency resources to deal with the impacts of climate change quite so well so there we need to come up with more sustainable alternatives how would these kind of systems cope with that kind of demand where all of a sudden everybody in on that isolated system says yes now is when i want to charge my phone or now is when i want a cup of tea and everybody all of a sudden influxes the demand on the system that's exactly what the challenge is in a lot of these smaller places you know when you make a big draw on a system like that and you've got our super big grid like a national grid you know you can like make that draw in a particular area but the whole system can kind of absorb that fluctuation pretty well whereas like when you have a little grid it's it's like the difference between like if you threw a rock into the ocean and it just kind of rippled and kind of faded away pretty quickly or you took that same rock and you and you threw it into a puddle 
right? And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the water's splashing out and it has this huge impact, you know? And that's sort of what it is. Like when we have these draws on these little systems, it can have very big impact. And when you're looking at changes, what you're talking about in how users are pulling from the grid, but then at the same time, you have huge fluctuations in the output. Like maybe it's solar and a cloud goes overhead and all of a sudden it drops to zero. At the same time, there's a big draw, a big demand from from consumers, you really have a problem. You often need um, some kind of storage to store that power, to be able to, to, to shift it from when the energy, the power is available, the energy is available, to when people actually are, are demanding it. Storage solutions are out there. They're just expensive. They add a lot to the economics. And, you know, as engineers, we can design just about anything. If you give us enough money, we'll solve that problem. But it's going to add to the cost. And so if we want to replicate systems, which is really what our goal is, is not to do one of examples of something, then we need to have ways of, um, of, of, uh, of storing energy in ways that um, is affordable uh, and yeah, batteries are great, but that's not the only way to store energy. And so we need to be thinking about that as well, that there's other solutions. So is it that the parts themselves, the technology is so new that that's expensive? Well, when it comes to storage, there I think there's some real opportunities to bring the cost down. But a lot of these, like the physical technology, like wind turbines and solar, um, hydro, geothermal, these are fairly known and established technologies. Um, we're not necessarily installing cutting edge technologies out there. The challenge is that we're trying to push the envelope in terms of how much renewable energy we're actually putting onto this little grid. So it's not actually the solar panel or the wind turbine that's really innovative or unique. It's the fact that we're trying to move toward very, very high contribution levels of these renewables compared to the fossil energy. And that is something that we are really pushing the envelope on in a lot of these isolated power systems, both in Australia and in Alaska. Very specifically, these are the two places in the world that probably have done the most to get to very, very high levels of these variable renewable resources, both using storage and not using storage, and looking at ways to make these systems kind of economic um, in their own right based on the technology that we're installing in these locations. It's absolutely fascinating, but I hope to get into some specific examples of your work in just a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science on Edge Radio. Gwen, while at Chenna, you oversaw the construction of the first geothermal power plant. What's that about? Well, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's a good example of where you're looking at what resources are locally available and trying to be creative about how you can meet whatever the, the overall energy needs are of a community. We're talking about electric power a lot here today, but, you know, heating, cooling, refrigeration, um, transportation, these are all other ways that we use energy other than just electric power. And so if we can think about these things a lot more kind of holistically and then think about what energy flows we have available to us and what energy draws that, we, that we're demanding of our systems, you can get to like some pretty interesting solutions. And so I was um, the lead engineer at this place called China Hot Springs in Alaska. And um, we had access.
access to a low temperature geothermal resource, not very hot, um, 72 Celsius, so about like a good hot cup of coffee is kind of the way I would describe <laughs> it, right? Nice. And um, yeah, and people didn't think you could really generate economically meaningful amounts of power on that system. But what we did is we um, looked at it as sort of running a refrigerator backwards. So you have a refrigerator in your home, Neve? I yeah? certainly do. Okay, so is it cold inside? It certainly is. It's cold, that's what you want, right? Exactly. Did you ever touch the, like the, the, the like behind it? Sort Sometimes of like it's a bit warm, is it not? Yeah, yes. yeah, so it's, it's rejecting heat. So you're basically putting in electric power and then you're creating an area of cold inside, ideally, your refrigerator, as long as you don't leave the door open. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the back, like those, those fins are radiating heat. So you're basically sort of putting heat into the environment at a higher rate, and you're cooling the inside. So what we did at China Hot Springs is we just ran that system backwards. So we had an area of cold, which in this case in Alaska, Alaska's cold. Did you know that? It's I did not. No, yeah. I knew Alaska was cold. It looks pretty <laughs> cold. Pretty Whenever cold I picture, there, I yeah. picture snow and so mountains. That's right. So we have yeah. good like environmental cold resource, whether that's cold water or cold air in the winter. And then we had this hot springs. And so we were able to kind of take cold and take heat in a refrigeration system, run it backwards and out pops electric power. It's just super simple, right? Well, I mean, it sounds very simple, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, yeah, why don't we just always do that? Yeah. But then how do you do the process of that? So you take something cold mm -hmm. and made it hot. No, no, no. You're basically driving. So this is an engineering concept. So it's basically, it's, 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 a, it's a heat engine is what we call it in engineering, right? And so, um, so basically the way that you make electric power or make useful work out of a heat engine is you have an area of hot temperature. So this could be heat from a, um, from a coal-fired power plant. It could be heat from a nuclear power plant. It doesn't, or geothermal. It's just heat. It's just heat. And then you have some sort of a, a, a cold sink. And that could just be the ambient air. It often is. Or you could have like a cooling tower or whatever. You have some kind of a cold sink where you're rejecting heat to. And the amount of power that you can generate is essentially a function of the difference between that those two temperatures that you have and you're using like you're driving a turbine or something like that that's kind of benefiting um, between that temperature differential I'm oh not yeah. going to make it more complicated than that but you know basically the bigger temperature difference you have the higher efficiency you have the more power you might be able to generate um, so that's a really those are really important sort of factors when you're looking at generating that's really interesting so thermal power the bigger difference that you had the more energy potential you can generate i would have thought it was the opposite but no maybe i would think that you'd need more energy to heat something that's really like when the difference is greater it will mm -hmm. require more input and upkeep but it's also sort of like you're taking the the energy out of the heat sort mm -hmm. of isn't it yeah, you can, and you can never take all of it out, yep. right? You can never extract all of it. These are like laws of thermodynamics. These are like fundamental engineering laws that you can't break. <laughs> so so um, one thing is that you can take heat out of some kind of your hot reservoir, whatever that is, but you can never take it all. You always have to reject some to the environment. It's a law, it's a law of thermodynamics. That's pretty cool. But it's just because some of it would just be lost in 
transfer and yeah yeah There's oh wow this is pretty cool this is why everyone should be interested in science because these are really cool concepts yeah i always uh, well, i was about to go very philosophical let's not do that <laughs> but i suppose like that sounds like a really um pragmatic solution was that quite innovative for that that yeah. particular making it economically viable and implementing it it really was it was the lowest temperature geothermal resource ever um developed uh, wow. that economically um developed in the world and it got um, an R&D 100 award, which is a really major award in the in the states um, for uh, kind of scientific innovation across all fields. Wow. And so, yeah, it was a really, for a young engineer to like kind of be the lead engineer on a project like that was, um, was pretty neat. And do you remember the moment where you were just like, we're going to be a reverse refrigerator? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I think that my major um, contribution to that was sort of like asking why. Like, like, so all the reports said you can't generate power off this resource. Well, why is that? It's not high enough temperature. Well, yeah, but we have good cold, so why can't we do it? Well, the, re the working fluid, the refrigerant that you use to sort of, because like there's a little few other details in there, um, isn't, isn't right for that temperature. Well, why can't we use a different one? You know, well, technically you could, right? So I just kept on asking why enough to get to the point where it was like, yeah, okay, you know, this is, this is doable. Like we could do this. And so, um, sometimes it's really important if you're not an expert in something like to kind of stick to it and be like, I, I just want to understand why we can't do this because maybe we can, maybe the answer is we can do it. No one's just done it before. Right. And that's sort of like what I feel like my biggest contribution to that project was, is asking why enough times. I feel like you're yep. massively underselling your contribution <laughs> to that project in a very big way. But I think that you're absolutely right that essentially, you know, there was a whole heap of assumptions there and you still had to assume certain constants. Mm -hmm. There's laws that cannot yeah. be broken, yeah. but just because we, ha we can't push the boundaries of the way that we've operated within those constants in the past. And, you know, you, you know that there's certain things that have to be in place but how much can mm -hmm. we we push the boundaries and that's where true innovation is born that's right but i like that the persistence of just being like but why <laughs> adopting that you know toddler persistence <laughs> of understanding the world around us and i think it's more of us need to hang on that's to that right. that toddler curiosity so in just a moment we'll be talking about how great it would be if we could do this on a bigger scale listening to that's what I call science and we're talking about engineering and specifically we've been talking about how we power small communities that aren't on the big bad grid and I don't know if you're like me but I can't help but think of Tron when I say the grid and I just think of these mad interconnected lights that I just really can't unsee but what's been really striking to me talking to you Gwen is that with challenges or with really isolated communities with constraints comes great opportunity to be creative and to innovate and typically I always say that about Tasmania that we have an island culture we are extremely resourceful we're extremely creative and we problem solve because we just don't have the resources we have to make do with what we have um, and I love that about Tasmania and I think that's why we've got so many excellent people working in STEM here but do you think that maybe we need to be taking some of this ingenuity from our small isolated power systems and be challenging the 
the man and the grid a bit more? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that it's probably um, true to say that necessity really is the mother of invention. Um, and that's really where in these more isolated locations, um, this is the only way that we really have to produce um, reliable, affordable electric power. And there's real lessons that we can learn because what I just find really interesting is that many of these really remote places, um, like let's say Flinders Island, they're, they're pushing on an annual level above 50% wind energy on an instantaneous, like immediate basis, 100% on a really regular basis. Oh, and wow. that's true in a lot of locations in Alaska too. And most large grid operators excluding hydro because that's a more you know reliable bit you guys are very lucky here i hope you understand <laughs> that um most uh utilities would never allow those sorts of penetration levels those sorts of like levels of renewable variable renewable contribution on these um these larger grids it just wouldn't happen um because there is risk associated with that and it is challenging and it's tricky but you know at the end of the day you wind up having a pretty resilient like grid that is locally sourced that ha can like really um, recover well and is sort of like this this like local microcosm that is using local energy and local resources and often local know-how to keep the system operating and if we really thought about how we might ideally reinvent our larger electric grid infrastructure which is really based on hundred year old technology right it's quite outdated, a lot of this really? is quite outdated right um, when we have outages, it often propagates much, much wider than just the immediate source of like whatever is creating that outage. It propagates across a much broader area. And if we just really actually had all of our power produced through these like, like local grids with local distributed energy and then kind of overlapping and linking and sharing power, but able to also isolate and generate for a smaller area when there was some sort of a challenge to the larger grid, it would make our whole electric system much more um, resilient to mm -hmm. any kind of um, vulnerability it has right now. And I think that that, to me, is pretty exciting um, from how we can learn lessons from these remote areas and apply them to the larger grid. So I don't know if we've actually really explained some of the mechanics of the grid itself, but so there's all these power plants or power stations. And if we don't talk about hydro, but typically for an electricity grid, are there multiple power plants typically burning fossil fuels that then feed into the, there's not like one mother load of a power plant that's just burning and it's going out all across the grid. It's it's usually people chipping in here and there, is it? Or so the kind of traditional model of a power system is that you have like a centralized generator, so that could be one or many generators, which then have transmission lines, so that's sending the power over a long distance, and then distribution lines, which is sharing the power out into the load. So that's sort of the traditional model of a power system which would rely on something like a fossil fuel plant, a coal-fired power station, uh, hydropower as well in Tasmania. But now as we move to more towards more things like solar power, which is being put on people's homes, that kind of infrastructure is shifting a lot in terms of now you've got localised power generation, mm -hmm. which is sort of it's a step towards you know that more resilient grid with more resources distributed around the system, but it's still got a, a long way to go to kind of compare to the, I guess, advanced renewables capability of some of these isolated areas. And do you think we can draw on some of those advanced capabilities, advanced renewable capabilities, 
to to pull in because I mean solar yeah. panel as well it's a little small scale micro changes that actually don't feed in even if we did them economy to scale even if everybody started to do them it wouldn't make us 100% renewable because it's just not it doesn't meet the demand so is there any ways in which we can start you know chipping in and doing our bit I think a bit more and thinking I think a lot of it actually is ownership and actually thinking about where electricity comes from and some of that but you know are there any things that you're excited for or ways in which you think we can start thinking about the grid and how we can feed into it in a more combined way either of you I think that rooftop solar has definitely enabled consumers to become a lot more empowered in terms of their their energy generation in terms of you know being able to contribute to that that I definitely think there's you know there's a lot more that needs to be done Mm. Do you would you see it being like a, a a multitude of solutions feeding into the one grid? So you know we might be getting wind from somewhere, solar from another, hydro, and it's all feeding into one. It's really just going to be this nice melting pot. Yeah, what you're really talking about now is distributed generation, and that's kind of exactly what Sarah was talking about. That's sort of the direction we're moving. You know, power generation used to be you know these big power plants that sent power one direction to passive consumers on the other end and now it's become a much more dynamic thing where the consumers can also produce power and feed that the other direction back into the grid and so it's just become this much more sort of dynamic structure on how things are produced and distributed across the entire system and that's just going to continue you know we're going to continue to see that I agree in places um, like Australia like where solar has a huge potential Places like Hawaii have committed to a 100% renewable target, and it's expected that a very large proportion of that would be coming from new solar. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's such an exciting time to really be drawing on the exciting technologies that are being used to generate power for these communities um, in a time where we're really being stretched and, I think, being forced to make changes. Thanks so much, Sarah, for hooking up with with uh, our guest today, with getting Gwen in the studio. This has just been such an exciting opportunity to talk to a woman that's been really flying the flag of engineering, two women engineers talking about how we can think about power in a really important way. Thanks for having us, Neve. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for listening, folks. And as always, get in touch with us across social media if you'd like to comment, share, or follow, and all of the other good things that people do on social channels. This is Now That's What I Call Science on Edge Radio 99.3 FM.